Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. I'm Warren Kinghorn. For any of you that, that don't know me, it's my privilege to introduce Josh Briscoe, who's going to be our speaker today. Uh, a couple of announcements before we start. Uh, one is that I'll pass around a, a sheet of, um, if you could just initial your presence here, and if your name isn't on this list, and you um, would be willing to be put on our informational list for, for, for announcements and programs and that kind of thing through the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, then please, um, please do so. Um, also, uh, we want to thank the Trent Center, whose space we're meeting in right now, for co-sponsoring this lecture series, and it's really, it's really a blessing to have their co partnership in this, um, these sets of events. Um, and also, I just want to alert everyone that there's a couple of, of, of uh, events at the end of March that all of you might be interested in. One is a one-day symposium here at Duke um, that has to do with theological uh, approaches to attending to people in pain. And there's a really great set of speakers and conversations that are set up for that day. Um, a number of people here at Duke, including, and, and also from outside of Duke, people like Eleanor Stump from St. Louis University will be coming in to participate in that. So that's, um, the registration for that is, is announced on our website at tmc.divinity.duke.edu. And then also that same weekend um, beyond that, there's a national conference that many of you already know about called the Conference on Medicine and Religion. Some of you, a lot of you are presenting at that conference. Uh, but it'll be at the J.B. Duke Hotel. It's, a, it's not a Duke-specific event. It's a national conference. It's meeting at, in Durham this year. And uh, the information about that is available on our website or at um, medicineandreligion.com. Right. So, uh, and the registration is open for that as well. So, so any of you have questions about those things, just let, let, let us know. Thank you. Um, so, uh, it's my privilege to introduce Dr. Josh Briscoe, who's going to be speaking with us today. Uh, Josh had, did his under, undergraduate degree at West Virginia Wesleyan University or College. He did his medical school uh, at West Virginia University. And then he completed a combined internal medicine and psychiatry residency here at Duke, uh, finishing in 2012. No, it's 12 residency. months, it's a 17, 17 right, for yeah, residency. 17. So, uh, so at Duke is one place where particularly intrepid people can do both the board certification in medicine and in psychiatry, and Josh did both of those. Mm -hmm. uh, and then since then, he did a palliative care, palliative medicine fellowship here at Duke. Uh, and so, and then now he's working a quite busy clinical schedule mm -hmm. within the Duke psychiatry department. So we're really grateful for you to be with us today. Thank you. Um, he's also an elder at his Presbyterian church. He's a husband and father. He keeps a lot of balls in the air all at once. And so the fact that you're able to carve out time to give a lecture is really, really wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. So, and we're speaking to us today on a faithful and wise compassion when potions, pills, and procedures fail. Yeah. So thank you guys. Thanks for having me. This is wonderful. I love talking about this sort of thing. And, and I've hopefully uh, will be able to manage my time well enough that we'll be able to have some good discussion for the latter half of, of the hour. And as Warren mentioned, I did med psych residency here, palliative care fellowship, and and I came on faculty as a psychiatrist in July. And over that period of time, I've had plenty of opportunities to see medicine fail, to fail myself, um, to fail my patients. I've struggled with my own pride and the suffering of others with what, on some days, seems like too feeble a faith. Medicine fails, I fail. Even when medicine works, it can still fail. 
even when I pick the right answers, if there are any, I can still fail. But failure in medicine shouldn't prompt abandonment of our patients, which I've seen too often. So what does it look like to sustain compassion even amidst failure? Which is a pretty unpopular topic because people come to Duke to because there's hope at Duke. That's that's one of our taglines. And so, but even then, Duke can fail. Um, so I don't have a mon monopoly on faithfulness or wisdom or compassion. Probably the opposite. But um, I hope to share some of what I've seen. So maybe we can go further together in our conversation. So Solomon told us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we come to revere other things, like we should God, that's idolatry, or as Solomon would have it, foolishness. It hurts when our idols topple to the ground and our foolishness is revealed for what it is. When medicine fails, when the idol of health, either for the clinician or for the patient, crumbles, it can feel like we fall with it. Even when medicine succeeds at what it's supposed to be doing, it may still fail. I remember standing at the bedside of an elderly woman whose lungs and kidneys and heart had failed. They were no longer working and each was being supported by its own particular machine or medicine. And amidst all the fear and clinical jargon and everything, it seemed like no one had any meaningful understanding or appreciation for what it meant for this woman to die well, or to die at all, in fact. Her family denied death, and even the people caring for her, the, the doctors and the nurses and the other folks, although they kicked against the goads when they whispered amongst themselves about how the family wasn't getting it, they functionally denied death too because they were the ones that was, was sort of doing all this to this one. So the promises of medicine had failed to deliver this poor woman and her family. Alan Verhey, the late Duke theologian observed that in such a case as this, medicine can actually make good on the promises of death. That is, death threatens to separate us from one another, from our God, and even from ourselves. It threatens to annihilate everything we know. Medicine, tragically, can do the same. Medicine can pluck people from their homes and their communities. It can replace a person's God-centered narrative with a medicalized one. And it can render someone a stranger unto themselves by mutilating their mind and their body. Don't get me wrong, medicine can be a great help. I've, you know, I'm, I'm still a physician. I still enjoy practicing medicine. I think there's great benefit from helping people with medicine. But eventually, medicine's going to fail, either because it has limits or because it's been aimed at the wrong thing. John Swinton argued that this medicalized fumble of, of the end of medicine occurs because clinicians do a poor job of speaking in a language that honors suffering. So he, he wrote, quote, the raw and disturbing language of suffering becomes translated into the language of diagnoses, signs, symptoms, and curative actions. Pain becomes a symptom. Fear, confusion, and chaos become things to be medicated. The deep significance of the desire to write stories for one's children is overridden by the search for restitution. Rather than telling it like it is, the glorious physician draws the patient into a medical world that's full of promise and optimism. The patient's narratives of anger, hurt, confusion, and chaos are muted and distilled into a smooth set of procedures designed to restore, fix, and mend." End quote. This isn't necessarily the clinician's fault, 
per se. Most clinicians are true believers, not swindlers. So they're not trying to make things worse for the people they're caring for. And we'll talk about some of that tension here in a little bit. So without situating this conversation within, without, within a broader one about what medicine and health are for, we're bound to be disoriented. For me, I'm satisfied with how the Westminster Catechism puts it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Therefore, both health and medicine should serve that end, in however small or indirect a way. But I recognize that not all clinicians are Christian, and unfortunately not all of them are Reformed Presbyterians, uh, and neither are all patients. But insofar as I'm going to glorify God in my own work, am I going to do it by showing others in word and in deed a small inbreaking of the kingdom of God? Or am I going to use medicine to fabricate an idol bearing false promises? Here I hope to show that when medicine aspires towards faithfulness, wisdom, and compassion, it shimmers with eschatological hope by loving those whose disease has made them strangers even to themselves. And when medicine descends into faithlessness and foolishness, it focuses instead on diseases and exacerbates suffering, reinforcing its idolatry and diminishing compassion. Let's see if the milestones of my journey are as interesting for you as they've been for me. So let's start with faithfulness. And what better place to start than the faithfulness of God? It's remarkable, right? Age after age, people flounder and falter and fumble and stumble and fall, and God remains faithful. But God, you know, that quintessential statement in the Bible, but God. Joseph told his brothers they intended him evil, but God meant it for good. Sheol will consume the wicked, according to the psalmist, but God will ransom his soul. Men crucified Jesus, but God raised him on the third day. Paul recognized in his second letter to the Corinthians that he and his companions were afflicted in every way, but God brought comfort. God is always there, faithfully lifting up, faithfully pushing back. God's faithfulness is often mentioned hand in hand with his steadfast love. Steadfastness, another word for faithfulness and abiding presence. Faithfulness in the Old Testament carries with it a sense of reliability, stability, and firmness. This is why the psalmist can praise God by saying that all his commandments are sure, like in, in the 119th Psalm. God demonstrates truth by how he acts, and he acts in faithfulness. So too we demonstrate that we believe to be what we believe to be true by how we act. Walter Brueggemann goes so far as to argue that the integrity of the relationship matters more in faithfulness than adherence to a body of doctrine. That isn't to say truth doesn't matter, but in Brueggemann's view, trust of a person's more basic than assent to a doctrine. Trust also isn't merely affective, like I feel like I trust you as in a feeling, but demonstrated by action and where the rubbers of, rubber of one's ascent hits the road of life. So too in the New Testament, faithfulness means more than mere ascent. It connotes steadfastness in action as well. Take 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. God is faithful and he demonstrates faithfulness by acting, namely by establishing guarding. God is also faithful in forgiving sins. Again, that doesn't mean faith is unmoored from truth and its cognitive dimension, but that it's paired with action, as in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, a work of faith and a labor of love. What we see here in all of this is God's intractable, steadfast care for his people because his love expressed in a covenant with them, even despite their afflictions and failures. 
At best, medicine can hearken to this kind of faithfulness. Stanley Hauerwas argued, medicine is but a gesture, but an extremely significant gesture of society that while we all suffer from a condition that cannot be cured, nonetheless, neither will we be abandoned. The task of medicine is to care even when it cannot cure. That's medicine at its best, but medicine alone can't do that, and often it fails. How is this biblical portrait of faithfulness contrary to modern medicine when potions, pills, and procedures fail? Throughout the Old and New Testaments, faithfulness to a relationship is exemplified, what I just talked about. God isn't faithful to the mere eradication of sin as an object, but to his people, to the glory of his own name. The people of God aren't called to be faithful to mere ideas, but to God himself. Even the law of God only foreshadowed the glorious things that were to come in Christ, with whom we as Christians have a relationship with the person of Jesus. Similarly, clinicians should be faithful to people. Often, though, we're faithful to organs and diseases instead. Here, here, here's, here's, here it is in a story. I remember caring for a patient who suffered both kidney and liver failure, and we were at a loss as to what was, what was the primary problem. And sometimes the liver can fail in a way that causes the kidneys to fail too, and we consulted the kidney doctor, and we consulted the liver doctor, and everyone was putting their heads together trying to figure out what was going wrong. And each of the specialists vindicated their own organ and were pointing at the other guy's organ and saying, you know, the nephrologist was saying it's not the kidneys, it's the liver or something else. And the liver doctor was saying it's not the liver, it's, it's something else. And I was just an intern. I didn't know. You know, I just needed help. You know, that's why I called everybody. And so I called the liver failure fellow back and I, and I said, just help me out. Like, what, what could be going on with this patient? And the fellow was pretty curt with me and he said, all I can say, it's not the liver. That's it. <laughs> And, you know, other circumstances may have provoked his limited involvement, like maybe he was busy or something, but he didn't really seem to care about the patient. His eyes were fixed on his organ alone and to the relatively short list of diseases that could disturb it. He wasn't really thinking about the person that was suffering liver and kidney failure. Faithfulness to people is made difficult by this kind of fragmented care, where faithfulness to organs and diseases is rewarded instead. I don't think anyone goes into medicine who doesn't want to care for people. You want to help people, right? And somewhere along the way, we learn to express how much we care by using our tools, the surgeon's knife, the cardiologist's catheter, the internist's differential diagnosis, and so on. These become the instruments of our care and compassion, the ways we show we care. When our tools fail, it can feel like our capacity to care fails, and faithfulness falters because what was faithfulness to an organ because it was faithfulness to an organ or a disease all along. It wasn't actually faithfulness to a person. We want to be faithful doing something and succeeding, not doing nothing and failing. And why is faithfulness so critical at this juncture when potions, pills, and procedures fail? Because it is exactly those times when we demonstrate whether our relationship with this person was grounded on love or on mere scientific curiosity, or perhaps worse, a contractual obligation or a business transaction. I'll leave it undefended just for the sake of time that we as Christians want our relationships marked by love. How can we cultivate this in training? Here's another story. I cared for a young woman who had advanced cancer. She was admitted to the ICU um, after a procedure that was meant to provide her some relief before she died went awry. And she had a complication, and they didn't know what to do, so they intubated her and sent her to the ICU, the exact opposite of what she had hoped would happen. She was hoping to go home shortly after the procedure. 
So she survived. She's in the ICU. And I remember in the wee hours of the morning, standing outside of her room, uh, watching as her husband sat at her bedside. And she's laying there in bed, and the ventilator's lifting her chest with each breath. Her husband's watching her, and their young daughter's sort of playing at his feet. And she's going to die soon. And he's there. And it reminded me that there are good reasons the Bible likens Christ's relationship to the church with marriage. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, encourages husbands to love their wives and calls marriage a mystery. Sometimes we can rely on that lesson to learn new things about Christ, and sometimes we rely on that lesson to learn new things about marriage. Paul wrote that, quote, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is faithful in and of itself, and consider also it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness through centuries, as prophesied by the prophet Ezekiel. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, and that's that's made real in, in the life, death, resurrection of Christ. Remembering that young man, I'm touched by his faithfulness on the brink of the abyss with his wife. His faithfulness to her pre- is predicated on the simple fact that he loves her. She's not a curious case, like we were talking about. He is not his banker, not his grocery store clerk. She is his wife. In that portrait of love, even amidst tragedy, I saw a glimmer of the kingdom of God. That isn't to say we establish the same marital faithfulness with all our patients as this man had with his wife. That would be a disaster. But we can learn something of faithfulness by simply beholding the sturdy faithfulness of God as he tends to his church and as spouses tend for one another because that's the mystery we see in marriage. We can become faithful people by receiving in gratitude the faithfulness of God If we take it for granted, as consumers and church shoppers, then we'll likely go on being faithless. But if we embrace the faithfulness of God, maybe we can convey some of that grace in proper proportion to our other relationships. So faithfulness gets us further. Now let's move on to wisdom. Wisdom isn't discussed very often in medical circles. We're more inclined to talk about clinical judgment or acumen. Not sure if that's because wisdom feels antiquated or because it hearkens to something deeper than mere technique, and that gets us up against arguments and difficult conversations we don't like to have in medicine. Um, And so we have it in the Old Testament, as wisdom is used to describe adherence to God's law. It's written here in Deuteronomy. It can also mean technical skill, but its range (coughs) encompasses much more. Solomon's upheld for his wisdom, most famously demonstrated in the story in 1 Kings, where the two women bring him the baby, and he's going to cut the baby in half, and it's just that pronouncement that determines who, who the real mother is. The book of Proverbs tells us this wisdom is from God. Not all wisdom is good, however, as the prophet Isaiah beheld of the Babylonians. Their wisdom led them astray. It's not enough to be wise. That wisdom must be oriented toward goodness as God understands it. How God understands wisdom is revealed in a strange way in the New Testament. That wisdom is manifested in the brutal, bloody execution of Jesus. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In the crucifixion, God declares that this is how his wisdom, love, and justice work. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise with this execution of this peasant, Jewish peasant teacher. 
when Jesus exhorts his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him, he's describing the grain of his universe with which they should move. This wisdom appears as foolishness to people who don't know Jesus, so much so that Christians should be pitied if Jesus had not been vindicated by his resurrection and ascension. It just doesn't make sense that the crucifixion of this Jewish peasant teacher would accomplish anything good, let alone be an act of divine wisdom, let alone be the manifestation of divine wisdom. Not only is it such, though, but by it, God reveals the foolishness and the wisdom of men. He condemns all worldly wisdom that would seek to make itself great apart from him. In this great eschatological reversal, the humble are lifted up and the proud knocked down might seem we've gone pretty far astray of our original task at hand. How is this portrait of wisdom contrary to medicine when pills, potions, and procedures fail? John Swinton again remarked, Death is rarely valiant, and healing often never comes. Pain is painful, suffering is real, and death is frightening. Glorious medicine cannot tell the truth and still retain its power has no narrative that might transform suffering without eradicating it. True, medicine has great power, and that power can be used to bring healing and the relief of suffering. However, that power is frequently revealed as foolishness in the face of the reality of death and the process of suffering and dying. We need something more than earthly power alone can offer. Why? Why is the power of medicine revealed as foolishness in the face of death? Because medicine just keeps going as if death isn't there at the doorstep or as if medicine itself isn't making good on the promises of death, as I previously shared in, in, the few, in the few stories I mentioned, or as if suffering isn't a harbinger of death that echoes in the deep darkness of our hearts, resonating in fear, despair, sadness, and anger. Essentially, medicine becomes foolish when it doesn't serve an end greater than mere physiology. Because the medical community doesn't have any shared understanding of what's good, as indicated by frequent skirmishes about abortion and assisted suicide and euthanasia and genetic modification and social determinants of health and incarceration for mental illness, substance abuse, and so on, we reveal that in Jeff Bishop's words, rather than explore the meaning and purpose of life, medicine's response is to create the patient as the master of her own body. She must decide whether to embrace or to reject technology. Rather than addressing the very human questions of meaning and purpose, medicine simply changes who's in charge, who has the sovereignty to control life and death efficiently and effectively. Matters of wisdom are boiled down to the question, who decides? This honors the insatiable appetite of our culture's idol of autonomy, but doesn't do much to help individuals and institutions cultivate wisdom that will sustain compassion. It's a far cry from biblical wisdom and resembles more what was happening in the age of the judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Therefore, Jean-Claude Larcher can write, it is true that physical health corresponds to the normal state of human nature, that is, in its prelapsarian state before Adam and Eve fell. And for that reason, health can be considered as a good in and of itself. Nevertheless, from another point of view, health is worthless to the human person. It does not constitute a a true good, but is only good in appearance. If it's not used well, that is, if it's not used with an aim toward the good, to fulfill the commandments of Christ and to glorify God. This is why St. Basil declares, insofar as it does not render good those who possess it, health cannot be counted among those things that are good by nature. 
It is, in fact, evil if it contributes to making a person indifferent to his <laughs> salvation, keeps him away from God by giving him the false impression that he is self-sufficient, and bestows on him that strength of the flesh which actually weakens, rather than giving him that weakness in which God reveals himself, which constitutes true strength. Health is an even greater evil if it's used to give free reign to the passions, thereby, thereby becoming an instrument of iniquity. Know then, St. Gregory of Nazianzus counsels us, how to despise an insidious health that leads to sin. To repeat then, medicine becomes <clears throat> foolish when it loses sight of the end towards which it should be striving. Of course, medicine may serve many ends. Jeff Bishop elsewhere argued that medicine becomes thoughtless and serves the ends of pragmatic doing and efficient control. I won't rehearse his argument here except to say he argues that's not good. That's not how it should be. We have from the Bible a portrait of what wisdom should be. So what would it look like to cultivate this kind of wisdom and training? The proverb declares the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Wonderfully, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption does not hinge on our medical expertise. We'd be ruined if it did. Instead, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, we read, You are in Christ Jesus... Okay, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The pursuit of this Christ-likeness is shared as one mind in community with other believers. Practically, because we need wisdom to obey God in loving people, this means growing in wisdom about people, not just diseases. When we grow in wisdom of people, we can help them wrestle with this question, what is your health for today? That's an important question because the foolishness of medicine can steal hope, replacing it with a medicalized version and can weaken one's imagination for what's even possible. For someone in Duke right now, I imagine some life dream has been desiccated into a daily goal of walking three laps around the unit in which they've lived for the past many weeks and months. It takes wisdom to broaden that person's imagination again. Importantly, this doesn't mean proselytizing at every opportunity. Not every conversation needs to be an overt gospel presentation. Instead, it can mean that contextualizing the gospel to a healthcare setting involves applying the gospel to one's care of patients, both individually and at an institutional level, and also in one's interaction with their colleagues. That is, it may involve casting oneself in prayer upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit because we're not wise enough to do any of this anyway. We need God. So maybe we're in a better position to consider compassion now, supported as it is by faithfulness and bounded by wisdom. Without faithfulness, compassion's fleeting, almost mocking. Without wisdom, it's unwieldy and harmful to both the giver and receiver of compassion. The Old Testament's chock full of compassion. There are so many passages, but I'll just hold up one. <clears throat> Isaiah 63, 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to what, to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Here we see that compassion is the outworking of steadfast, faithful love. Compassion is what happens when love contacts the realities of people living on this cursed ground. This theme continues in the New Testament as the author of Hebrews exhorts the people of God to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, uh, to help in time of need. <coughs> what is the time of need? 
Paul in Ephesians 2 explains it. But God, being rich in mercy, that is the Greek word that translates steadfast love in the Septuagint, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Again, the outworking of God's mercy, his steadfast love is compassion manifested in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I could go deeper, but we need to move on. How is this contrary to medicine when potions, pills, and procedures fail? Alan Verhey remarked that compassion withers when we expect too much from it or from ourselves. In the context of the extravagant modern expectation that technology will deliver us from our mortality, from our human vulnerability to suffering, it may be little wonder that we suffer compassion fatigue, for we expect so much so limitlessly much from ourselves and our tools. Medical training talks a lot about empathy. Sometimes we talk about compassion, but we rarely discuss how compassion is situated in the broader array of virtues that physicians should possess. Without those checks and balances, compassion becomes like cancer. Growth in the body is good, but unregulated growth ultimately kills. How can we cultivate a proper compassion in training then? This has to happen in the church, among the people of God, because compassion is sustained only in community. And according to John, we can only love because God first loved us. Therefore, we know all compassion and love is but a reflection of the love we've experienced from Jesus. One place to which we can turn to see a sign of that love is the Lord's Supper. Even though we ingest mere morsels of food and drink, Their power comes not from their physical constitution, but from the work of the Holy Spirit through them to declare what Christ has done and what kind of people he is calling out of the world. By partaking together, the church demonstrates its communal strength and commitment to share the sufferings of Christ, to embrace those who are hurting, and to testify about who and whose it is. The church eating and drinking together holds in trust the hope of Christ's coming reign through not despite his crucifixion and resurrection, even as it embraces those who feel hopeless. When our minds strain to remember why we approach the table and our bodies groan under the weight of their afflictions, we find ourselves embedded in a community that itself remembers and cries out in praise, thanksgiving, entreaty, confession, and lamentation to the God who saves. Which leads us to a second way compassion can be cultivated. According to Verhey, If we retrieve lament, we may also renew our capacity for genuine compassion. For we may learn again to give the suffering a voice, to preserve for them a place in community, to be present to them. Lament is a talk unto itself, but it may be helpful to peek at how its absence diminishes compassion. I've cared for many patients who belong to faith communities, primarily Christian churches, whose families and pastors told them to avoid psychiatric treatment. If they had enough faith, they were told, if they really laid hold of what God had done for them, if they prayed harder, if they attended worship more regularly, then they'd get over it. Essentially, if they neglected lament and moved straight to praise, their problems would fade. Compare that with the 22nd Psalm. You might recognize it because it's found its way onto the lips of Jesus as he hung on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? If only David and Jesus himself prayed harder, right? 
If only they worshiped better, maybe things would have gone better for them. Gethsemane proves Jesus prayed intensely, and still he suffered. Gethsemane provides that, proves that the bootstrap gospel is wrong. The psalm describes the surrounding darkness in the metaphorical forms of bulls and dogs, and then, finally, light breaks in. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. This psalm and all the psalms teach us that our prayers are not only informed by Scripture, but formed by Scripture. We are given a rhythm to approach our circumstances. Wait, but wait. Our patients are the ones who are suffering, right? They're the ones that need to learn how to lament, right? Putting aside the fact that barring some fatal accident, all of us will become patients at some point in our lives, we see how lament is not only formative of our prayers, but our compassion. As Verhey observed, lament gives, us, give the, gives the suffering a voice, preserving a place for those who suffer in community while being present to them. That's compassion. Our pills, potions, and procedures will fail. You'll fail. I'll fail. That is in part because medicine promises too much, and also because we're limited humans using tools with their own limits. We can't usher in the new heavens and the new earth with some plastic and better chemistry. But as we cultivate a faithful and wise compassion, we can see and show glimmers of that glorious kingdom to come. Thanks. So I left plenty of time for discussion, questions, reflections on your own personal experiences. I'm a psychiatrist. I can sit quietly for the <laughs> half hour. <laughs> start the charge meter. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Since I'm not a theologian, I'll start because mm. it'll be a dumb question. And <clears throat> it'll make y'all sound good. Um, <clears throat> so... I really I was intrigued by your observation about compassion as the only virtue it turns into like cancer. I thought that was... Mm. Was that your idea? Or did you get that? I, every idea I have comes from somewhere. I don't yeah. remember reading that explicitly I, I, I somewhere. I haven't quite heard that before. Because um, that is the virtue I hear the most in medical mm -hmm. education circles, uh, besides confidence and mm -hmm. following the evidence. That's a mm -hmm. very essential one. And it's just interesting how that language has become so essential to sort of mm -hmm. describe the physician's mm -hmm. task. Um, but in the school of medicine, I often hear it um, used in a, I mean, I'll say maybe allegedly secular, but I think it's often an idea more influenced by Eastern ideas. Mm -hmm. The implication being that the key to compassion is not any of the mm -hmm. stuff we have to go through, but mm -hmm. take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. There's some wisdom. I mean, there's mm -hmm. certain wisdom to that. Sure. If you take care of yourself, mm -hmm. pay attention to yourself. Not just take care of, but pay attention to yourself. Mm -hmm. That will produce compassion. Yeah. And it's, it's a powerful idea. And, I, and, and I, I guess I hear this is a very central idea when I hear people try to articulate how do we fix what's wrong with medicine. Yeah. we got to wellness, mindfulness. Mm -hmm. That will lead to compassion. Mm -hmm. just kinda, I'd like to hear it's, it's really interesting. So I think... And, uh, 
in training, um, one of my co-residents was involved in one of those endeavors around trying to help house staff become more mindful, and, and, and the house staff sort of pushed back on it, and I think they pushed back on it, and I suspected they would push back on it because uh, they were being handed a tool, but that tool wasn't situated in a broader story about what it was for in, in, in their life, and caring for patients it was just, you know, let's do some deep breathing exercises together and then go up back out there and finish your 24-hour shift or whatever. And I think that's the tension. When we talk about self-compassion in medicine or compassion to others, take care of yourself. Um, but also, when you're at the hospital caring for patients, that's, that's all you can do. You're going, to, you're going to abandon your family. You know, if your family calls with an emergency, you know, are you, you going to be able to find coverage? If you can't find coverage, you're going to have to stay at the hospital. Like, these sorts of dilemmas. And when I've come across house staff or... Um, or uh, medical students who are just broken down in tears. Like they, you know, obviously folks get sad because a patient died or something like that, but when they're truly like broken down in tears, it's because they felt alone, because there was nobody around to help them realize what was going on. And in fact, the opposite, everybody around them was proceeding as business as usual. And they encountered something in medicine that didn't didn't sit right with them. There was some ethical dilemma or something that wasn't going to be resolved with a surgery or, you know, cardiac catheterization or something. And so they might be very compassionate, but they're asking, what do I do here? How do I fix this? What's going on? You know, and, and inevitably the question is, how do I fix this? And they want to get out, just like all of us, we want to get out of that bad feeling as quickly as possible. And, and perhaps there's wisdom in following that sadness to where it might lead. We don't talk about that. We want to get out of the bad feelings as quickly as possible. We want to use mindfulness not as a way of uh, attun uh, become attuning more to our core emotions, but rather to become more resilient and just take care, better care of patients. So it's still oriented towards patient care, which patient care is important. I'm not anti-patient care, but I think it needs to be situated in a broader narrative of what it means to care for patients, what is what are we doing this for? And I don't think we're really answering that question very well. Good, good, good. Quick follow up, like yeah. then you go. So I, I kind of like how you, there is always a sense that we talk about it like recharge your battery and then let yeah. it, and then pulling the lever, letting it fly, but then you've got to then pull it back and recharge again. Um, so you know, compassion. Think about compassion and passion. Um, mm is anything to think about because I do think most people entering medicine want to do it to help people mm -hmm. not to take care of organs mm -hmm. okay and they feel something's missing if they start focusing on organs mm -hmm. but I think we do struggle a lot with what does it mean to faithfully take care of people mm -hmm. um, we have a longing to have deep interactions with people mm -hmm. and to get into their inner lives um, into the intimate details of their lives mm -hmm. but to do that on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. when it doesn't fit into the rest of our lives. Yeah. That's where I think we really struggle. Yeah. Um, you look at TV shows, you know, think of the TV show about doctors from the 1970s, which is before you guys, but it Marcus mm -hmm. Welby, which it would have like one long drama. Yeah. You know, and, and there'd be one drama per show and the implication the doctor knew the patient well and, and it's all part of this ongoing story. And compare that to emergency room. Um, which is uh, five, eight stories per episode. Mm -hmm. People, strangers being thrown into intense interaction mm 
mm-hmm. and then pulled apart again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's essential to think about that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what is really missing when we leave, and obviously you can't live that intense, intimate kind of mm-hmm. life on and on mm-hmm. when it's just you and the patient. Mm-hmm. And what we lose is there's no sense of, it's a very individualistic model. So where is, right. you know, I think what it, part of what is behind what, but I think I'm hearing yeah. you say is that you need to be part of a bigger community. You do. So yeah, you need you need to have felt faithfulness. Question. Yeah, yeah. So you need to have felt faithfulness and and sort of received faithfulness in of God in the church community to know what faithfulness is like. I've seen wonderful examples of faithfulness in in medicine of folks that and and you know I don't. Uh, my experience tells me this is true. I don't know if there's any evidence to support it beyond just my own experience that, you know, that longitudinal relationship that every primary care doctor longs for, that's a way to build trust. But the other way that you can proceed um, absent of trust or to build trust perhaps more rapidly is to really orient around a common goal um, and, and to bring clarity to that goal. And so I've seen physicians walk into a room, meet family for the first time and bring clarity to the circumstances or if they can't bring clarity at least be present with uh, oh they're crying uh, so I'll just leave you alone and step out no they sit they sit and, and abide the crying and and they and they are quiet when they're in and, and you know not you know interrupt within the first two minutes of the interaction with the family um, and that can be immensely Satisfying. I've heard families and patients talk about this about how Dr. So and so they just listened, or you know they 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 said a few words and that was just all we needed to hear was just an explanation of what was going on, and so I think that's a way of demonstrating faithfulness as well, even if you don't have you know a years long relationship with somebody. Yeah. Thank you for Nice. Try and be really engaged with the scriptures. Yeah. But I had a question for you about instilling faithful and wise compassion. Kind of two questions. Okay. Um, you mentioned that sort of seeing that sort of compassion being inculcated, like the church is the place where that's going to be inculcated. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess first, do you see that as a point where sort of Christian vision of medicine and sort of secular medicine are just inherently going to diverge? Um, could there, do, you, do you see any possibility for Christians embedded in sort of medical system as it is introducing sort of concept like lament yeah. somehow? Um, I, I'm just I'm curious. <laughs> That's a really good question. So uh, you guys might be familiar with a book by James Davison Hunter called To Change the World. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it. And in the book, it, the, he does a lot of things in the book. He's, a, I think, a theologian from... UVA, I guess, I don't know. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a sociologist. Yeah, sociologist, sorry, yeah. Okay, so in, 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 but, yeah, I mean, there's theology in there. So, yeah. Uh, So in the book, he does a few different things, and, and the thing that's most relevant to your question is that he describes sort of these three camps of Christian cultural engagement, um, and he labels them broadly, the, the conservative, posture, the, the liberal or progressive posture, and the neo-anabaptist posture. And in the, in the conservative posture, the idea is that, you know, uh, we're going to build up our own institutions, we're going to fight, we're going to defend, and in a medicine correlate, it might be that um, 
you know, I'm trying to think of what a medicine correlate might be. I'll come back to that one. But the liberal sort of uh, institu- posture is we're going to make the gospel relevant to the culture. So we're going to you know, give up a lot of things. We're going to make things relevant and care less about the truth. The truth will care for itself. Conservatives are very much about defending the truth. And so the correlate there might be, so we're going to really just take what um, secular uh, philosophers of medicine are talking about and bring it in. And then the New Anabaptists are saying, no, we're over here going to, we're going to make our own hospital systems. We're going to close off and people come in and it'll be our own rules, our own hospital systems, our own insurances. You know, you, you hear sometimes about Christian shared health care costs and these sorts of things. So that so that's sort of the New Anabaptist view. And But Hunter goes on to describe a fourth posture is faithfulness within. And so this is the posture he argues for, is that Christians ideally um, change culture um, by being faithful within. So they're called to a particular vocation. They're called to be faithful within that vocation. So it's not so much defending against, it's not so much making relevant to, it's not separating from or being pure from, it's being faithful within. So that's what I, what it, you know, that's what I'm hoping it comes through here is that it's not about abandoning the whole institution of medicine or like really steamrolling it, but it's about, you know, you're going to be a faithful Christian, your little corner of healthcare, whether, you know, whatever you're doing, or anywhere, you know, it doesn't, you know, whatever you're doing, you're going to be a faithful Christian there and just be faithful to, to these primary tenets of the faith. You said you had a two questions. Okay. The second question has to do more with then how that instilling faith one wise compassion in the church will, will work. I, I was just having a conversation with one friends yesterday who are, um, doing doctoral work in New Testament, and they were expressing frustration over um, enthusiasm some of their colleagues had for uh, theological, people who were advocating like theological um, readings of scripture against like historical methods, and just saying like, you know, we just need to read scripture with the church, mm. and one of them just said, have you ever tried reading scripture with the church? Yeah, <laughs> it's right. terrible. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, want what... What does instilling compassion in the church sort of look like? Yeah. You know, do you just see that sort of taking place in like practices like um, you know, communion or how, how the, because I think in a lot of ways mm-hmm. you can argue the church is like poorly mm-hmm. on this front. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem like it's just an automatic thing. So what yeah. do we need to change in order to actually instill this sort of compassion? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good question um, because, uh, you know, the church is just full of misfits and sinners. I mean, goodness gracious, right? So, um, and we keep screwing up. I mean, you've heard about the Me Too movement and you have the Church Too movement and you just have all, all these scandals rocking the church and there's and there's more underneath all that, I'm sure. And so, like, yeah, what, I mean, what does the church have to offer? I will say that um, we, God has given us just these ordinary means of grace that we can put ourselves in the way of or not. And so, you know, are are you going to pray or not? Are you going to pray together or not? Are you going to partake of the sacraments or not? Are you going to listen to the preached word or not? And so, um, as messy as it is, and it's always been messy, I mean, it was messy even with the disciples following Jesus around. When Jesus was walking the earth, it was messy. And uh, even with the Holy Spirit, you know, guiding the apostles in that early church, it was messy. And so, it's always been messy. Um, so, but are you going to put yourself in the way of those, of those sort of means of grace, or are you going to sort of say, I'm going to look elsewhere? So at least if we're, if the church misses sort of the vein of gold in the gold mine sometimes, at least they're going in the right mountain 
compared to secular approaches that are in a completely different mountain. So I, I proceeding in faith, at least, that, that God has has called these people out of the world. They're going to mess up. They're going to screw up. But this is who we're going to go at. And, and part of it also is, and it's a little bit of a soapbox for me here, but part of it also is just given the consumerism of our culture, uh, it's hard to stay in community in a church. So I don't like what's going on in the street. I don't like the music. I don't like the preaching. I don't like whatever. So I'm going to go, go down the place down the street. And so there's no, it's, it's hard to cultivate spirit of faithfulness with that kind of, spirit of consumerism working against it. Um, but if, in communities, smaller communities, like say a Bible study or, or even a small group or whole churches perhaps, uh, where that faithfulness is cultivated, it's really rich, you know, and it sticks through thick and thin, sick and well, rich and poor, and it's a really beautiful portrait. It's just rare because the spirit of consumerism is overwhelming at times. I, I think maybe part of the trick of that is being able to cultivate churches that can name illness. When I was pastoring a small mm. church, like they had shown the joys and concerns, like after the right before the sermon, so everybody knew if you were going into a medical procedure, if you were going into the hospital. Um, you know, it was a church of about 30, 35 people, but everybody knew who was suffering and what they needed to do. So when I ended up in the hospital, suddenly when my eyes opened in the ICU, the people that were there were my parents. And people from my church, because the pastor had figured out that I was in the hospital, figured out where I was, and told another member of the church who was director of pastoral care at the VA where I was and that. So when I opened my eyes, my family was there and my church was there, mm. because we had a, created this culture of, okay, we have a member of our body who's suffering, this is where he is, go see him. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we have older members that, same thing, like, everybody makes sure that, you know, somebody had a stroke. And, you know, the church brought food, made sure his wife had what she needed to be able to go back to work and things like that. So I think part of that is cultivating spaces where the church can name the suffering in the body. And that's, it just takes time. That's really good. That's a really good point. I think there is a role for a prophetic voice to the church here. You know, um, Joel Sruman and Brian Volk do this in their book, Reclaiming the Body, where, where they say, you know, oftentimes congregations and pastors kind of abandon their people when they go into healthcare. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to do there. I don't know any of these tubes. I don't know these lines. So I'm, I'm and, you know, give them over to medicine almost entirely. And so there's a there's an admonition to the church that no, don't abandon your people. Go with them into healthcare. Yeah, Todd. Yeah, I'd like to ask a follow up to the answer that you gave to Wilson's first question, and that is that you mentioned kind of this fourth route mm -hmm. of engaging in medicine, and that is like being faithful within medicine, uh, which I think is really helpful. But one of the questions I have is that I, I, again, like maybe just have you talk a little more about how that works practically because medicine is not ever something that we do alone, obviously, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a communal activity in that it requires the commitment of you as the physician. It also requires the commitment of you know several other physicians, mm -hmm. nurses, like an entire community of people mm -hmm. to care for somebody. And if compassion can't stand on its own, like you mentioned mm -hmm. with the Verhey quote, in that it has to be directed somewhere, and that the way that the Christian understands where we're directing compassion affects the way that we practice medicine, um, but if you're practicing with a dozen other people who think that compassion is directed elsewhere, sometimes even to ends that would be mm -hmm. contrary to the ends that the Christian would direct, 
music yeah. or compassion. Like, how does that work out? Practice? How do you cultivate faithfulness really whenever you're like so tied into this team yeah. that might be? That's a really good question. So, uh, and I'm going to give a pretty boring answer um, in that, um, hearkening back to sort of the, to putting yourself in the way of those means of grace. So when I was um, an intern, and my wife and I moved here, my wife was pregnant with our first son, and um, and you know, intern year's crazy, and you're, and you're working a bunch of shifts, and um, and we had two choices, at least. One would be it's crazy, and we're about to have a child, and so we don't we just really just need to hunker down, or we need to get plugged into. A, a church community for the sake of our spiritual well-being and our mental well-being. Um, and that's what we did. And so we got plugged in. And it was hard for me to, to go. I mean, I was just working a lot. Um, but I would make, whenever I could, whenever my schedule allowed, I would make that time. I would go tired. I would go hungry. I would go to Bible study. I would go to worship whenever I could. I made it a priority. And then as we've had children, I've made this a priority to, to go to worship, to pray, to read scripture. So it's not a special medical thing. It's that you're cultivating these rhythms of faith in your life that are, are they themselves, God is being faithful to you through them, regardless of whether you're working a 24-hour shift or whatever. I mean, you might miss worship this week, but at least you've, you know, called a friend or gone to a Bible study this week or something. Some rhythm of faithfulness within the church that God is, you're seeing how God is being faithful to you. And then you carry that with you to work. So, so you know, I've said th- no to certain events at work just because it conflicts with my life in the church or my, or my life with my family. And that's that's aberrant at a place like Duke. I mean, at Duke, you say yes to everything uh, until you die. Um, and uh, but there, to say no, why would you say no? Like, what are you, are you, are you? What's going on here? And so and so, just saying no in and of itself is is a way of sort of getting people's antenna up. Um, so I would say that. So the boring, just wake up in the morning or before you go to bed or wh- whatever the rhythms are that work for you, establishing those rhythms of prayer and Bible study and worship. That, that are so, so important, that will then, I mean, just like being exposed to something that's radioactive, if you're close to the word, you'll carry that radioactivity with you into work. Yeah. Yeah. So, first of all, that was a really fantastic talk. I'm really grateful for Thank you. to hear that all, all at once. The question I have is on your, you get this really beautiful image of witnessing the faithfulness of mm-hmm. the husband for his mm-hmm. wife who is hospitalized. Mm-hmm in a really serious situation, and and then you made the analogy between that kind of faithfulness and the faithfulness that clinicians have mm-hmm. with our patients, and then you commented that it would be a disaster mm-hmm. if, 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 if it were the same kind of faithfulness, yeah. and I guess I want to know more about that, so, yeah. so, how, so what's different about the kind of faithfulness that a physician or a clinician has for a patient yeah. uh, from a marriage? necessarily so like what 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 yeah. would distinguish that that's really good so um so when i was when i was standing there and i've and i've thought about this particular situation a lot i mean this happened in my second year of residency training so it's been you know five or six years or so <clears throat> since since it happened and obviously she's since died but um when i think about what, what he was doing and what other spouses were doing for, for their loved ones as they were sitting by watching their loved one die. Um, 
yeah, what, what is different between what's going on with, with me and, and, the, and my patient and them and their spouse? And I think one thing that is different is that they have clear, they've made clear vows to this specific person. Although I have a, a, you know, a fiduciary relationship to care for my patient and have a responsibility, I haven't made a vow to this one person. So there's something you know, um, very pe- peculiar going on in the marriage vow that I, that I don't share with the patient. I think what's the same, though, is that uh, when I think about that particular man, is that he uh, was willing to be stopped, and I don't even think he was willing, I think he had to, like, obviously he had to, uh, but whether he was willing or he, or he was had, to, had to be interrupted by what was going on with his wife, um, so it wasn't business as usual. Um, there's a really good book. Uh, the author's name escapes me now, but uh, the title of the book is called Intoxicated by My Illness, um, if anybody knows it and can remind me of the author. But it's, it's the story of a man who, um, it's, it's his sort of autobiographical account of being tra- treated for prostate cancer. He's a very articulate man, and he tells this story. And one of the things he remarks on is that he, would re- he really wishes that his physician would notice that even though visiting with him is just a routine incident on his rounds, uh, today is the crisis of his life. That like, you know, seeing patients for me is just something I do before and after lunch. You know, it's work day and I go home and I have dinner and I put my kids to bed. For every single patient I see, it's the absolute worst day of their life and a crisis. And just like, recognize that and be interrupted by that and pause and so and even if I don't open myself entirely to that and be con- you know consumed in grief like this husband would be um, to at least let a little bit of it in and sit for a moment to sit in the crisis so not like sit afar from the crisis but sit in the crisis with this person I think would be an act of faithfulness it can be painful for me to actually realize that wow you know, you've ruined your life with alcohol, you're homeless now, you know, you're, you're at wit's end, you're suicidal, and now yeah, that would be painful for me to sit with that. But to just sit with it and be interrupted by it, I think is one example of the faithfulness that I see there. Uh, just, if I may, I was make a comment about marriage. It strikes me that at least in Christian tradition, one of the constitutive features of marriage is it's only one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, a relationship of of uh, sui generis of, of complete self giving that is different. It's not like friendship in the sense that you can have multiple friends, mm-hmm. but it does seem like doctors do make an implicit promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, marriage obviously involves a very a profound and unique kind of promise that can't be made with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dr. Stewart seems like to me makes a kind of promise mm-hmm. to uh, attend to the one who is sick mm-hmm. in solidarity mm-hmm. with the patient, mm-hmm. um, holding the patient's health as a common good, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, it's, there's a similarity mm-hmm. of solidarity and faithfulness through what comes uh, that... that um, that's pretty substantial, mm-hmm. it seems like, if, if one is a good physician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think what's challenging about that, though, so if, and this is why we aren't like our loved one's physicians, is because the, the conflicts of interest there. So, for example, in a situation where um, um, there's some scarcity of healthcare resources, um, 
that is the bind. Like, so I have three patients to which I've committed myself in the way you're describing, but only one of them can get what they need. What do I do? And that's truly like the, the feelings that this evokes, the moral distress and terror that that dilemma evokes, I think harkens to, to perhaps what, we're, what we've done and we've committed ourselves to each of those patients. Um, but uh, I, don't, I don't know if I have a broader point than that, except to say that that's, it creates really hard dilemmas when we, when we, when we um, say we're that committed to each one of our patients. Yeah. Yes. Good. Well, I have one more question. <laughs> the question is, you, you, in your talk, you, you made repeated and substantial references to Scripture. Mm -hmm. um, do you do that in your conversations with patients or mm -hmm. colleagues? Something of a loaded mm -hmm. question. And if not, why? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, uh, no, I don't do it with my patients um, this year uh, since going all the way back to psychiatry because scripture is an unwieldy weapon in the hands of many of my patients who are, who are inpatient uh, for psychiatric reasons. Um, and so uh, it, uh, I'll just leave it at that. It's an unwieldy weapon. I don't want it to harm them in ways that I wouldn't expect. Um, in my time doing all palliative care, I, I was, I, I didn't share scripture with every single patient, but I, I was much more, you know, if a patient was Christian, you know, I, would, I would pray with them, share, you know, read the 23rd Psalm or something like that. Um, I wasn't just, you know, effusive with scripture with every single patient. Um, as far as colleagues are concerned, my uh, no, uh, the short answer is no, and I think um, the reason is because the bias for against scripture is so strong, and it's so um, trite in healthcare. Oh yeah, you're, so you're sick. Here's this Bible verse for this thing that you've got. That I don't want people to mishear me. So my project with healthcare, and my sort of informal project with my colleagues in healthcare, is not to sort of overwhelm them with scripture, but actually undermine everything else that stands against scripture. And so I'll just ask questions, I'll push, and, and, and I'll see you know, where, where what they believe sort of falls down, and why, why does it work that way, and that sort of thing. So that's sort of my agenda more so with some of my colleagues. Just to remind everyone, uh, we'll go as late as 1.15, uh, or you know, until questions are over, but I know some of you need to leave earlier, it's, it's completely fine. Were you going to tidy up the marriage question? Well, I, yeah, I just, just in the, to continue the conversation and not mm -hmm. talk about what you said. Sure, yeah, cool. no. Yeah. I think if, if I were, if I were, if I committed to be present to my patients' lives and suffering in the same way unanimously mm -hmm. that I have committed to be present to my wife, that would quickly not be okay with either my wife or my patients. Right, yeah. Yeah, like there's, yeah. there's important, and, and in some ways as a, as a psychiatrist, and I think, as a physician, also, I'm, 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 it's actually not always my. Um, it's not always the responsibility of faithfulness to fully take the suffering of my patients onto myself. That mm -hmm. actually might be counterproductive mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. harmful in some mm -hmm. ways, um, both to me and also to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and apart from its effect on them, it would quickly overwhelm mm -hmm. me. And so I, I think it's, there's 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 a there needs to be a kind of distinction between 
what does it mean to be faithful, a faithful clinician mm -hmm. and what does it mean to be a faithful spouse? Yeah, it's different. And one thing that one thing that might help in that is is that um, we attend to the suffering of other. It, we as Christians attend to the suffering of others, not. Um, <coughs> in ourselves as if we're like going to the mountainside and healing all the people who mm -hmm. come to us you know but we do so as part of the larger healing ministry mm -hmm. of jesus as mm -hmm. participants in um, mm -hmm. the redemptive work of god through the Son mm -hmm. and the spirit and so it's not ours alone like mm -hmm. we can participate in it but only as kind of but, but there's, there's kind of freedom in that mm -hmm. in that participation so it's mm -hmm. it's um it's christ who's faithful mm -hmm. to his church and mm -hmm to all of all of, of, of humanity that awaits redemption. Mm -hmm. And we ourselves are faithful in our participation of Christ's faithfulness. But yeah. it allows us to do it as a as a common yeah. and not to feel the burden of like, you know, your patience that you're gonna see this afternoon. You have to fully enter into right. any aspect of your suffering and take it on yourself. That's really good. Because that would make you into yeah. Jesus. Totally. I, I, one uh, response that I would say is that, you know, I don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know what was going. You know, I, I knew that husband was obviously sad and grieving. I don't know if, if he uh, was really, like, assuming her suffering. I think he was grieving. Mm -hmm. um, part of me wonders with, it, with this in, with this sort of experience that I beheld in, this, in, the, in the ICU there, is that, um, and part of what I hope to convey here, and sort of allude in talking about Ephesians five too, is that um, when when we think about examples of faithfulness, like I could have talked about the physicians, for example, that I saw that had been faithful, but it's much harder to go from how the physicians being faithful is a sign of Christ's faithfulness to the church, whereas in Ephesians five, Paul very clearly delineates that. Uh, the, this mystery that's going on it's somehow this the marriage between man and woman is also a mystery or some relationship between Christ and the church so we can look at marriage and very quickly get to Christ and the church and the faithfulness between Christ and the church so I think it's when we look at spouses that are faithful to one another in health care where we can be more readily reminded of wow like this is what Christ has done for the church and this is what faithfulness looks like uh, and not that we're going to translate that one-to-one -to, -one to my faithfulness to patience, but just like this is the flavor of it, maybe. Well, Warren, what does it even mean to take on somebody's suffering as your own? I'm, I'm pushing back to ask, do you see... I, I can't draw to mind an example of a physician taking their patient's suffering on their own in an inappropriate way. In an inappropriate way? Yeah. Like I can imagine it in the abstract, but I'm thinking, does this actually happen? It, it, Wilson can. Uh, psychiatry, <laughs> psychiatry does. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe in psychiatry. Okay. I mean, I mean, the kind of way in which you're, I think, just a level of human relationship. The way in which we enter into each other's internal experience and allow ourselves to feel, to think with another, and so that changes us and it changes the other person. We we form as selves in relationship. Mm. And and there's there's um, there's things going on in that kind of space, and so and and that also leads to a kind of intimacy of suffering, you know, kind of sharing and suffering. That that with um, with my patients, I'm mean, gonna have to be careful not to distance myself from their suffering, as if I'm just like a technician. 
but there's also times when I have to be able to stand back and to say, my role here is actually not to sit and, um, and experience suffering with this person, mm. but it might actually be to be able to serve a, more of a role of some other kind of, some other kind of role, like mm. a guide or, or, um, or someone who might actually set some limits on their expectation that I would share in their suffering, like people with personality disorders. I actually need to be able to feel a little bit, a little bit um, alone in a relationship that's safe, and to learn to be able to do that. Mm. And so that's, I mean, that would be an example of how you should be careful not to take on mm. too much. Wilson, mm-hmm. oh, well, it was possibly an example of someone taking on their patient's suffering. In uh, when Brett comes here, Paul Kalanthi talks about one of his. Uh, friends who's a general surgery resident who has a patient die and kills himself. So I, that was just immediately what came to, wow. came to mind. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I feel like that could that, be yeah, a, that. I just, it strikes me that may, Warren may be one of those rare physicians who's actually tempted to, to be so committed that you're too committed. But it seems to me that the the tendency is so hard in the other direction. So hard the tendency is so strong for all of us toward being detached um, that the risk of getting too caught up in and too connected to the suffering of your patients seems a very low risk for most physicians. It's almost mm-hmm. like you, you want to cultivate that susceptibility. I don't know um, if that's always the case. I think for many of us, I think we start off in medical school being too detached. And I think the detachment that we see is really a response to being too attached and being too exhausted or even burnt out that you just go in the opposite direction. I think many people in medical school um, are grieving, you know, when you have that, that first patient you lost even though you're the third or fourth year medical student and it's not, you kind of believe this is your patient and even though you're not necessarily like on the front lines, you're not putting in the orders um, by the time you are an intern and you've had more loss, you know, by the time you're an attending or even like a fellow, you begin to, I think, in many ways, like just just the volume, I think, more responsibilities come into play and the best thing for you to do to keep your sanity, I think, for a lot of people, unconsciously, you're more detached. But I don't, I, you know, just kind of thinking about, um, you know, for me being in medical school, what my classmates were like, taking time to debrief, and then going through residency, and now as a fellow, um, I think it's a lot different. Mm. Just, I really like that a lot, and piggybacking off of that, I wonder if that detachment is maybe driven by sort of an over-attachment, because I, I almost, I see like almost a, a bimodal distribution in the way um, I've just observed residents and attendings sort of approach this, that there probably are more that are detached, but there is also, there's a number that really derive their identity by, from being known as people who are very committed and who seem almost in a problematic way to be getting something out of the fact that they are so deeply committed to their patients. That, you know, I mean, whether that's, that's, I think, expressed a lot of different ways, but I, I, I feel like there is something there. And, and I wonder, too, for in response to your question, if it's 
if it's not so much the deliberate taking on of our patient's suffering as it is, and maybe this is how chaplaincy is kind of like psychiatry is, even if you don't want to take it on, I'm sure all of us who have worked in medicine or, or chaplaincy have those cases that just stay with you whether or not you want to forget, you know, even if you wanted to forget those people, you couldn't because in some way, they just, they stay with you. And yeah, yeah, I just wonder if that's the sign that we're not completely dead. Um, <laughs> and that if they don't, if we don't have cases that stay with us and trouble us, then we've, something badly, bad mm -hmm. has happened. Rather than that those are signs that something maybe we got too enmeshed, it seems to me that given the nature of our work, it should be, and I realize psychiatry adds a whole layer of complications, um, but it seems like given the nature of our work, for the moment setting aside the very important area of um, mental health issues, that we, sh we should kind of almost always be going like this, trying to be attached in order to avoid becoming, like we all do, pretty detached. Pretty much seeing patients before mm -hmm. and after lunch. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm a little bit wary of trying to figure out what's going on underneath the surface for clinicians. I mean, cases might stick with us. Like, um, like this case sticks with me. I don't even remember this patient's name. Like, like this case sticks with me because of because of what it symbolized, and 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 some other emotional aspects like how she had a young daughter who who was going to be without a mother. Like it wasn't because I I cared immensely for this woman. Like I, I cared for her uh, as a patient, but it wasn't this like I'm going to take her suffering on me. It was sort of the image of the family together that stuck with me. Similarly, you know, other cases stick with me for different reasons, and and I'm actually kind of just struggling to think of a case for myself where I, the patient, the person, I was I, I was caring for the person in a way similar to like my wife, like, and you know, for example, uh, several years ago, one of my sons had to go to the emergency department for something that ended up being minor, but sitting in the emergency department with my son, like, I was just like broken over my son, like, he, he was having some trouble breathing, and I was just like at wit's end, and I've never been like that with a patient, right, um, and so, and that sticks... To, with me because he's my son and I love him in ways that are different than my patients. Um, so I'm wary of like commenting on what's going on underneath the surface with some people. I will say though that even in the realm of mental health, like I feel like we can still end up being technicians, not in matters of distance, um, but <laughs> just in sort of treating our thing. Like, all right, I'm just here to prescribe the SSRI or whatever, um, and I'm not really gonna like think about you or respect you or dignify you as like a full person. I mean, in psychiatry, you would think, you know, we're we're thinking about somebody's social situation. We, in theory, we're thinking about their spirituality and you know, and they're thinking about their biology and these sorts of things. So you think you'd have that whole picture, but what ends up happening is, you know, well, the social thing goes to the social worker. I take the biological thing, prescribing the medicine, spiritual thing, the chaplain's got that, or I don't even talk about it, let's not talk about spirituality. And, um, and so it still ends up being like siloed, and my little thing is just prescribing the SSRI. And so I think that's the danger of like, whether you're like too far or not. I mean, I could be seeing that person every week and still, and still have that sort of like technical approach that's problematic. Can you help with that? Can you define the difference in how you're using it between suffering and compassion? Because I feel like you can't fully ever suffer with somebody else because 
physical pain as a yeah. part of that. Very brief because we need to look Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, so uh, very brief uh, suffering, er and I'll just use Eric Cassell's definition, is when there's a threat or actual harm to the integrity of a person, and he has a particular definition of a person. So that is, you know, I've, I've lost my role as a father. I can't walk anymore because of my, I, my I'm amputated my legs or something like that. And so, uh, no, it's true. Like, you're suffering in this way because you can't walk anymore or you're not a, you can't be a father the way you thought you could be a father anymore. I can't, like, do that with you. So what does compassion look like there? Um, that's a really good question. And um, I think at least part of it involves a willingness to see it and help somebody work through it, like be with them in that and not abandon them. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, thank you, guys.